Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for December 2018. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And in our rotating third chair this month, we have writer, academic and my fellow editor at Senses, Cesar Elberan Torres. Welcome back, Cesar. Thank you. On today's show, we will be discussing Alfonso Cuaron's much-lauded latest film, Roma, in which Yelitsa Aparicio plays a maid who washes floors and cares for children, picks up dog shit, makes tea, and completely breaks our hearts at the same time. We'll then turn to the latest issue of Senses of Cinema, which features a dossier edited by our very own Cesar Alvaran Torres, uh, focused on contemporary Latin cinema, with articles on the cinema of Chile, Mexico, Argentina, um, and that's just a couple of countries just for starters, And finally, it's almost the night before Christmas, so we wanted to turn our attention to the film discovery of this year as a nice way to put a bow on an excellent year of cinema. We'll end, as always, on our recommendations for the month of December. And for patrons of Senses, in our bonus today, we'll look at the flip side of our discoveries and discuss the people we lost this year in the world of film and TV. So let's get things underway. Roma tells the apparently straightforward story of Cleo, played by newcomer Yelitsa Aparicio, who is a maid in a wealthy family in the suburb of Roma in Mexico City. She cares for the four children uh, and their parents, and occasionally also the grandmother of the house. And the film charts the progress of her days washing, serving, cleaning, and very occasionally getting away from the house for a brief moment of leisure. But a plot synopsis of Roma is kind of pointless because the experience is not really narrative-based, but one that slowly draws you into the lived experience of Cleo, set against a backdrop of some incredible camera work. Now, I'm saying up front, the praise that Roma has already achieved um, is 190,000% deserved. Um, It's certainly the best film I've seen this year. Um, I agree. So, Cesar, am I crazy or is this just a complete masterpiece? I do think, look, I don't use the term masterpiece lightly. Nor do I. But I think this is a masterpiece. I agree. (laughs) I think it is a masterpiece because it brings together different types of cinematic achievements. Yes. On one hand, if you're a native of Mexico City such as myself, I grew grew up in that place. You know, I was just telling Mark before we started recording the podcast that um, my grandparents' house looked very similar to that house. Hmm? And it's the kind of a replication of um, Quaron's own childhood home, isn't it? Almost exactly the interior design. Absolutely. So the house, the relationship with uh, domestic workers, mm -hmm, it is pretty much like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In Mexico, you don't have to be rich to hire a maid, right? Because there's huge levels of poverty because the rural areas were just forgotten after the Mexican Revolution, and particularly in that time, the 1970s that Roma portrays, the influx of people to the city was huge. Oftentimes, maids are 15, 16, even 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And they do, in some cases, become part of the family. Now, one of the critiques that I would have on Roma, which is not Roma's fault or Quaron's fault, is that it sort of portrays an employer-domestic worker relationship that is the exception rather right. than the norm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was one of the things that 
you know, sort of drew me into that film. And my experience of watching the film was so interesting. It reminded me, even though, you know, is it fair to draw a, a comparison between watching Quaron's film and something like an Ozu film? But the experience for me was really similar. And and that that is that that sense of I sit down to an Ozu film, I love Ozu, he's he's one of my favorite filmmakers, but when I sit down to it, I'm always really conscious of how pretty everything is and how emotionally disengaged I am for a while mm-hmm. until you forget about the fact that you're not emotionally engaged because you've become so emotionally engaged you don't understand how committed you are to the people who are in front of you. And I found that with Roma, like the first half an hour I'm like this is so pretty this is amazing looking. Don't really kind of, I'm not fascinated by the narrative or by the characters, but you know, I'm really, really into looking at the pretty. And then about an hour later, I'd forgotten that I was emotionally disengaged because I was so intensely engaged that, you know, all it took was like one look, one shot, one word, one brief kind of sequence of dialogue. Mm. And I'm ready to like, flood the cinema with tears. That's such an interesting way of putting it, you know, like that he has this kind of um, ability to portray intimacy on screen so much so that you don't even kind of realise. I mean, he's not over the top. He's not, there's no melodrama here. Not many of his films do have melodrama in them in, in that way, in that classical way, you know, but in the same way that Ozu maybe like plays with those Um, machinations of yeah. melodrama sometimes that yeah. Quarren does the same thing. I mean, yeah. I, I remember that there was a, a point where I did, where suddenly something happened and I thought, oh, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to start crying now. Yeah. And then had that moment where I went, but the last time I was even conscious of the way I was responding to this film was a bit where I'm like, yeah, I'm not so totally engaged with this. <laughs> and so the contrast between, and there was an hour in between where, where I was lost like I didn't even exist anymore. I was so into the film that I just, you know, my brain wasn't even functioning apart from just responding to everything that was happening. And this tells us how powerful Roma is as a film. I mean, you just watched it recently. Yes. I watched it recently, you as well, after the whole festival boss, after the whole controversy around the distribution, after it's been like an Oscar front runner and all of that, right? So you sit down expecting great things, yeah. you know? And I think I also felt disengaged in the, in the first bit of the yeah. film, and I think that was the reason. Yes. I was like, okay, Quaron, convince yeah. me yeah. Yes. that you're fantastic. Impress me. That's right? exactly right. And I think that uh, I, I, I do agree. I think that Osu is a big influence in Quaron, and it's a big influence in Mexican cinema in general. Quaron comes out of the CUEC, Centro Universitario de Estudios Cinematográficos, which is the... National University of Mexico (laughs) Film School. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that whole generation of filmmakers was raised by watching also films and by watching that type of contemplation. Yeah. Did you watch life. a lot of them when you were living in Mexico, Cesar? What's that, sorry? Uh, Ozu? Yeah. You, there was access to all of that kind of stuff for you? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was it because you were influenced by this like no, film no, school? No, the thing is that of... I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring this up. Film culture in Mexico is much more lively than mm-hmm. in Australia, mm-hmm. and especially what you would consider art house cinema. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's much more of an industry. Even. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you can find Keslovsky in the supermarket. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's very, very, very different, and it's much. There's more access to it. I mean, uh, when I was in high school, for example, there was this uh, art house cinema called Cinemania, and they would run Wim Wenders marathons mm-hmm. for two or three weekends. So you would buy one ticket and just watch all of Wim Wenders over three wow. weekends, things like that. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I did. Yeah, so even before university, it was kind of embedded yeah, in, yeah, yeah, your in high childhood. school. Yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you can see kind of that, I mean, that film is also kind of stacked full of film history as well. I mean, yeah. I, I mentioned Ozu, but I know that, that um, you know, you did an intro to, to Roma and we're talking about the influences of kind of Italian neorealism, which you absolutely can see. I mean, Roma, see. Open City, I, I think I it's know. not yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but also almost uh, some of the French New Wave stuff is in there. Oh, it absolutely. Just, it feels like it's this film that is embedded with history and yet doesn't spend all its time saying, here's the shot out of, you know, Band No, absolutely apart or something, not. You know. It's a very... And I think it's cinema stripped down to its basics. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that this comes that late into Cuaron's career. You know, after Solo con tu pareja, uh, his first film, um, when he moved to Hollywood, did A Little Princess, did Great Expectations, which were these whole huge Hollywood films. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter, Children of Men, which I think is a fantastic movie, but it's a lot of artifice. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the few that don't hold gravity in that high regard. Yep. Yeah, I'm Especially a bit, because yeah. it's very melodramatic. Mm. Yeah. I felt like I was watching a telenovela yeah. from back home in yep. Mexico. Hmm? But Roma is not that, you know. Roma is very well-paced yes. as well. Yeah. And, I mean, you can't get more tragic than what happens in Roma. Yeah. And yet life continues. Yes. Mm-hmm? And I think it's important to note at this point that it's a true story yep. mm-hmm, of Cuaron's own Nanny, yep. Libo, yeah. who's, uh, there's this beautiful interview with Cuaron in uh, Vanity Fair and uh, where he talks about Libo, who's now in, in her 90s. Oh, I was reading that last yeah, night. It's yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't let a discussion of the film go by without talking about the crazy shit that's going on with the camera in that film. Mm. I just, I, I almost couldn't yeah. cope with how virtuosic some of that stuff there's a sequence where she and it's early on and and you know for for listeners that maybe haven't seen the film yet it really is just a process of understanding how her day goes she gets up she washes things she cleans yeah. things she serves people you know and that that is really just the the rhythm of the film and there's a sequence where she gets up in the morning and the film and the camera does this incredible 360 degree spin but the whole time, what we're doing, we're conscious of the movement of that camera in this kind of dizzying movement. But all we're doing is following her as she goes right around a room and opens curtains and turns on lights and you know, shuts yeah, off lights. And, you yeah. know, and she kind of can be on the left side of the screen and then you know, the, the camera will keep moving and she'll pause. She'll end up on the right side of the screen and then it's almost like she catches up. Um, you know, what he's doing with the camera is freaking incredible. There is one shot I have to talk about. Because it's one of, I think it's my favourite moment in cinema this year. There is a scene, and this is almost the point where I realised that I was so invested in the film that I was going mad. Um, there is a scene after a particularly kind of um, emotionally um, intense sequence where uh, 
the family and Cleo are kind of positioned centrally in a frame. They're eating ice cream. Uh, and I was just looking at this family and so incredibly tethered to them. And then what I thought was off screen was this voice saying something like, you know, all right, everybody smile for the camera. And a flashbulb went off. And I realized as I dragged my eyes away from the family and looked to the right side of the frame, there's an entire wedding that is taking place in the mm. frame that I didn't even know was there. I couldn't even see it because yeah. I was so fixated on the family. Like, And it wasn't just one random person. It's the entire bridal party. And I didn't see them. And when I returned my gaze back to the family... That was when I was I realised they were positioned under that dirty great big plaster crab, crab. and it took and that's a shot that lasts for about five minutes, yeah. <laughs> and it was only in the last fifteen seconds that I realised that anything else was positioned in that frame. Like I don't know how you do that. You 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 can't have a crab that takes up the entire top third of a frame and a wedding taking place in the you know right hand side of the frame. And not have me notice that that's going on, that's genius. I don't know that how he did genius. it. Yeah, absolutely. And Quaron did the camera work, yeah. the editing, the yes. writing, yeah, yeah. producing and directing it's one of, of this his film. first Mexican films that his brother did not write the screenplay yeah, for. Is right. that right? His brother Carlos. Yeah. yeah, Carlos has written the screenplays for his other two films, mm-hmm. yeah. um, Mama Tambien and the other one, which is. Solo con tu pareja. <laughs> translates L- as like. Loving only the times have... of. Oh, is. Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah, loving the times of chaos. Or okay, like I was that. reading that, yeah. that, that you know it's kind of a reference to this um, whole anti-HIV, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. social policy. Of yeah, like which is like have just do it with your, your yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, and he, he so he wrote the screenplay, he did the yeah. the cinematography, um, and it's just it, it's utterly beautiful. I mean, it does release on Netflix. We saw it on a big screen. I can't even. Something that is so visually overpowering, I can't conceive of watching it on the TV. I will, um, but I mean, a lot of people have really large TVs these days, and that's yeah, okay. I guess. I guess what the important thing to say is that, like, not everyone can get to cinemas. I think it's only screening sure. in Acme in Melbourne at one cinema in Sydney. This yeah. is in Australia. Lido is... Le- oh, Lido, Lido here in, as well. Yeah, yeah, in Melbourne. Okay, yeah. Um, but Acme, it was originally scheduled to screen until the nineteenth of December, and it's now been extended to the thirty-first. It may get. More screenings yeah. beyond that. Who knows now if it's been so successful? You know, so that's really good that it is what... getting a cinema release, even though it's a Netflix. And property. what about um, outside of Australia? Like, what's the, what sort of a release has it got there? Is it just because obviously it's going to Netflix? So yeah. it's, it's got limited releases yeah. in the US, yeah, and UK, I think the UK as well. Uh, but it's been released in over forty countries. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you follow Guaron's Twitter account, he's uh, constantly updating. Yeah. The Great theatres where it's yeah. being shown. I mean, when it comes down to it, like, you know, it, it's not a film that kind of embraces you from the, the from the very beginning. It's beautiful. It does take a little while to sort of fall into the rhythm. Mm. It's a radically different rhythm to a lot of Hollywood cinema, so you need to be prepared for it. But I 100% encourage no, I mean, you were talking about the crab and the bridal party yeah. and all of that. Uh one of our colleagues, Anne Golding, was telling me, oh, that's very surreal. Yeah. There was a very yes. surreal scene. Yeah. And, you know, André Breton mm. defined yeah. Mexico as a place that's surreal yeah. by itself. So yes. all of the things that might seem strange for people who are not from Mexico are not strange <laughs> at all. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. In the I film. Mean, it's yeah. like, yeah, that happens. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I will 
pull you up on that because there were whole sections that were kind of Fellini-esque. That bushfire that happens oh, that... with the guy who just stands there and sings for us. It's like, oh, this is... You never sang in front of a bushfire, Cesar. No, but I could see it happening. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with a bunch of drunk people. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, anyway, yeah. May- you could see that Maybe happening. the way that we think about bushfire, like everybody will die. Maybe it might Well, be and they have like three-year-olds putting out the bushfire. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen in Australia. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> anyway, you should like, you know, if you can't get to it, Netflix will yes. do fine. But, yes. but yeah, be prepared to just settle in and let it wash over you this Absolutely. film, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one thing to mention. Yep. I found it amazing that Quaron kept the mixed tech dialogue. All right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Cleo is from Oaxaca, a region uh, that has a long history of indigenous struggle. And the fact that he kept the dialogue like that yeah. is great. Mm-hmm. And, and I think something that the Anglosphere should learn. Yeah. Is it very you know? um, unusual for Mexican films yeah, to absolutely. use dialect in that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Especially if they're aiming for like a foreign or global release. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Wow. I can only think of one movie that I've seen mm-hmm. with indigenous language in Mexico. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was a very small movie. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. All right. Well, I guess we're all thumbs upping over here and, and like I said for me and I suspect for all of us it's one of the best films of the year so you must go and check it out if you can get to a cinema do it if not Netflix is your best option and you'll still really enjoy that film I think In the December 2018 issue of Senses of Cinema the 89th issue of the journal is a special dossier on Latin American cinema today comprised of a number of articles focusing on Latin American cinema across the continent and edited by Cesar, this is a great contribution to scholarship of cinema of the area that is much needed to be explored on a global scale. Cesar, can you tell us a little bit about the process of putting this dossier together? Yes, of course. Um, First things first, it was edited by myself and by Abel Muñoz, Pardon mm-hmm. me. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> Who's a film critic and uh, academic Great. in Mexico and a big follower of Census of Cinema. Yes. So he was Excellent. so happy oh, when he's he... he's written one of the articles. Yeah, he uh, wrote the, the article. The Mexican film industry. Yeah, he wrote mm. the article in the Mexican film industry. So uh, when I was appointed one of the editors of Census of Cinema last year, or earlier this year, rather, uh, I was like, okay, I should prepare a dossier. And I had a chat with him. And we came up with the idea of doing a co-edited dossier with Census of yeah. Cinema. Do, do you want to explain how that's going to work? Because we're yeah, doing something really sort of interesting with this. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Abel is the editor of Iconica, Pensamiento Cinematográfico, which is Spanish-speaking film journal. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a Census of Cinema of the Spanish-speaking world. Is it online or print? It's Sorry. online. Okay. It was print. It was printed by the Mexican Cinematheque, but it's moved online only. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might go back to print. I think that's in the works. So we said, hey, let's do a dossier on what Latin American cinema looks like today. Yep. Mm-hmm. And one of the big claims alongside all of the articles or most of the articles has to do with the linguistic imperialism of the English language 
in Latin America, not only in terms of film, but in terms of business, in terms of everything, right? So we thought it would be quite, you know, counterintuitive and hypocritical not to publish sure. the dossier in both English and Spanish. Yep. So it will be published in English in Census of Cinema, and below each title will have a link to the Spanish version, which will be published in Iconica. Correct. Mm -hmm. So that was the first step. The second step was trying to escape just having Anglo-speaking writers, yep. mm -hmm. which is what oftentimes happens in academia, you know, and in film criticism and in film journalism in general, you know. Uh, very seldom do we have people from the actual regions that are being talked about writing about it. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of linguistic barriers, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a really good mix of English-speaking and Spanish-speaking authors, which, of course, meant uh, translation. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, I myself translated some of the articles, Gabriela Munoz translated some others, and Mauricio Rivera, who wrote uh, the Embrace of the Serpent uh, article in Census of Cinema a few issues ago, translated another one. Mm -hmm. So then we looked at the main film industries in the region. And again, trying to define what Latin America is. Do we include Quebec? Do we not include Quebec? Mm. So we deal with what Latin America means in the introduction to the dossier. So we looked at uh, the five biggest film industries in the region. So we looked at Mexico. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, Eloise will talk a little bit about that article. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We looked at Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia. Mm -hmm. And then we also contacted three indigenous curators mm -hmm. right. who have worked with the Berlinale, who have worked with different museums in Latin America. We couldn't have a Latin American dossier without an indigenous voice. Yep. Mm -hmm. So there, it's a conversation among three indigenous curators in Latin America, and uh, it's a fantastic conversation. Yep. Mm -hmm. They try they try to define what curation means, and they looked at it in terms of offering, presenting an offering in a much more ritualistic kind of way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's a good but incomplete dossier. Yeah, of yeah. course, we couldn't have like 20-something articles. No. We're leaving Haiti out, for example, which is oftentimes not regarded as Latin America, although it is Latin America. Mm -hmm. We were also planning to do... Um, an article on diasporic Latin American cinema in the U.S., Chicano cinema, for example, that didn't come through. So maybe in future issues of Sense of Cinema. There's always another issue. Yeah, what <laughs> we wanted to do is a snapshot of the aesthetics, the political economy, and the main voices in Latin American cinema that escaped the usuals, like Alfonso Cuaron himself, yes. right? So we Abel barely mentions Alfonso Cuaron in the in the uh, Mexican dossier and the Mexican article, but uh, yeah, that's basically the process of putting it together and what we wanted to achieve. Fantastic. So it's incomplete. Yep. You know, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Venezuela, Cuba. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. But maybe. Uh, Maybe number two. No, number two, return yeah. of the dossier. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the articles that I found most interesting was the article by Abel Munoz mm -hmm. uh, on Mexican the Mexican film industry. I feel like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm coming from my 
personal experience and what I know the most. But I think in terms of Latin American cinema, what I have the mo- had the most access to is Mexican cinema. Yep. Um, probably because of my interest in the you know golden age of Hollywood, because of course the golden age in Mexico kind mm. of existed in a parallel time. It was a very big industry. I know that a lot of American production or kind of post-production sometimes did take place in Mexico, I yeah. think. It's a um, huge industry. But yeah, yeah, in terms of like the genres that were coming out of both industries, they kind of existed in parallel times. Mm-hmm. Um, right? The, the um, I think the Museum of Modern Art in New York and then Cinematheque in Melbourne, um, we screened a couple of films that they had screened. Um, Mexican noir is kind of, you know, what it was like. So we saw um, films by Julio Braco. Yeah. Um, with the other one with Dolores Del Rio, who came to Hollywood and then went back to Mexico, that kind of thing. Dated Orson Welles. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> um, gee, wouldn't that have been uh, nice? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> for him. Um, yeah, right. for him. Yeah, Not let's so move on. <laughs> so, but I have seen quite a few of those things. And as well, I know that there's a lot of work going into restoration of that mm. history of Mexican film, yeah. right? Um, when I was at Il Cinema Ritrovato this year, um, Olivia Harrison was there with Martin Scorsese and their World Cinema Project, um, uh, restoring a lot of these old films. So um, Emilio Fernandez in Amarada had been restored. Yeah. His Victims of Sin, which I think when I came back and talked on the podcast yeah. about the Bologna Festival was one of my highlights of the, yeah. the festival. Like that kind of stuff is is really important, I guess. But this this article, Abel Munoz, is talking about the future and, yeah. like, how we can kind of – how Mexico can continue that, um, you know, slate of production into the future, right, because now there's um, shifts with kind of what's expected um, and how we can – you know, how, a, I guess, a foreign industry referring to Hollywood as the centre can kind of just compete on a global scale yeah. um, in any country, let alone yeah. just Mexico. Um, but it was a really fascinating article, I think, and very important to highlight. I guess, you know, because in this industry there's restoration occurs, but we need to have this this narrative in the scholarship that kind yeah. of accompanies it. Yeah. So absolutely. having them there to balance out is what's really yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what sort of, you know, having compiled this dossier and, and done this little mini survey, as you say, not an exhaustive survey, but a mini survey of Latin American cinema. What are the things, the themes that are coming out? You already mentioned the idea of um, the English language cinema. I mean, what do you felt feel was the, the kind of emergent concern as, as you were reading through these articles? I think the relationship between the state and movie making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of unofficial censorship yep. and in terms of funding, yep. which, I mean, not funding something is a kind of censorship, right? Yep. So just like in Australia, we have Screen Australia. There's not such thing in the States, in the US. In Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina, uh, the government gives funds for films. And basically any film that is not supported by the government finds it very hard to exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of those kind of concerns came through in Stefan Solomon's article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, about the Brazil Bra- film industry. Yeah, 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 because there are certain films there that are, you know, supported by the government, but he's saying that the their new funding model doesn't support short films. So, yeah. n- you know, now where a lot of kind of prominent directors have had their beginning in short films that that kind of is not there anymore. Yeah. Um, and of course also there was that big thing with Kleber Mendoza Filho a few years ago with yeah. 
um, Aquarius yep. um, being censored, but you know that 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 cast kind of received censorship from the government, and that a whole you know mm. a lot of really ugly things happened with that. Yep. Um, but you know that that is kind of rife. It's he still came across as fairly positive, I think, about the future. Of yeah, the absolutely. And um, and also another topic that arose from the from the articles was revisiting the past. Yep. The very recent and very traumatic past, which is something that Roma does yes, as well, right? Absolutely. So uh, in Argentinian cinema, for example, revisiting the years of the dictatorship, not necessarily through period dramas, but through you know, movies set in contemporary times yeah. or something like Sama, Lucrecia Martel's masterpiece. Yep. If you haven't watched it, it's mm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Which sort of deals with issues of today, yeah. you know, I unresolved processes sure of colonization. Yep. Uh, the Chilean article deals with all of these documentaries with both victims of the Pinochet years and children of the perpetrators of war crimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is very similar to a lot of Israeli cinema yeah. and Israeli documentaries that have to do with the Holocaust, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? Yeah. So uh, I think it's that's another one of the themes that is emerging and also Latin American countries being mostly Catholic, the issue of queer cinema also emerged right. in the mm-hmm. dossier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The new avenues for queer cinema to be incorporated into the mainstream and into the national cinema, you know, the the canon of national cinemas. And when we come back to this issue of English language cinemas and trying to navigate your a national cinema that is going to hit the stuff that you want in Argentina, in Chile, whatever, but then also to try and get something international, that's obviously a tension that, that is evident in in these articles that yeah, trying yeah, to walk absolutely. that line between both. And I mean, and the Chile article does a great job into discussing, in particular, the career of uh, Pablo Lorraine, yep. who, you know, was renowned for films like Tony Manero in Chile, like No in Chile, but then went on to Hollywood yes. to do Jackie. Jackie yeah. mm-hmm. Where he sort of like kept his style and kept true to himself. Uh, in Argentina, we have Campanella, for example, who moved on to, I mean, he went from doing something like Luna de Avellaneda to, you know, direct episodes of House MD. Yeah. You know, so this tension between staying at home yeah. or going to Hollywood is also that also comes across in the in the articles. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a fascinating dossier and a really important contribution, I think, to, you know, something, a particular region of cinema that doesn't get nearly enough, I think, historical or contemporary kind of coverage. Yeah, Um, and I love the fact that we're kind of getting, what is it, not bi-coastal? What are we? National. By national. By linguistic. But yes, in our our publication process, I think that's a really exciting... Uh, thing for for censors. Uh, yeah, and I think for you know, film writing in general. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, a lot of the time, I guess, film writing, and not to discredit it, but comes from kind of a theoretical distance, yeah. doesn't it? With experience of of something, whereas yeah, having people having an indigenous indigenous voices in this yeah um, dossier yeah. and having you know local writers is great. And um, also, I mean, questioning the term of Latin America itself. Sure. You know what does it mean? Mm. You know. So, uh, yeah, and what does it mean for Indigenous people? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
It's fascinating. You should check out that dossier. Yes. At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. So we find ourselves at the end of the year, and that's always a good time to have a think about those in the screen industry that emerges, people to watch in 2018. There have been some incredible first films and some breakout performances. Cesar, who do you think has announced themselves as a person of interest this year? Well, my second favourite film of the year was also a Netflix film. Okay. Which is Private Life by Tamara Jenkins. She's not emerging, emerging, but she's re-emerging after having directed The Savages yep. many years ago, like yes. 10 years ago, I think it that is. That is a long time. I yeah, that is a long time. And at that time, The Savages was like, oh my God, who's this woman? She's a fantastic filmmaker. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman with one of his best performances, Laura Linney yep. as well. And then she comes back with this film with Catherine Hahn, who's like a fantastic, love her. She amazing great? actress. Yep. And Paul Giamatti in a great role again, you know, yeah, yeah. in par with American Splendor and Sideways. Hmm? So it's a fantastic movie about a couple in their 40s who's trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking and beautiful. And it just took me back to the best Casabetes, yep. you know. Oh, okay in, you know, portraying those, like, very intimate moments and very intimate relationships. Yeah. Uh, and also New York Life. I just thought it was a fantastic film. It was sad and funny at the same time, yeah. which is something really hard to achieve. Reminded me of uh, Alexander Payne, for example. But she's a great voice in her own yeah. right. She's a fantastic filmmaker. And I'm super keen on to see what she's going to do next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's always upsetting when you get get somebody who has that big break. And I'm not sure what she did in, in between that. I think she, was she television. doing any TV? Yeah. I'm not sure. But it's not unusual for a woman filmmaker to have that yeah, experience. Exactly. I mean, that's really common in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in America yeah. as yeah, well. Absolutely. To just, you know, have a huge critical and even commercial hit. I don't yep. know what The Savages was particularly, but then to just struggle for funding. Yes. Uh, yeah. Again. And maybe, I mean, you know, we, we'd have talked 
before about the benefits of Netflix in terms of, you know, mm. what content they can show, but yeah. maybe this is also, you know, what they can do with their money is that they can, yeah. um, that they won't be, I guess, as kind of nervous and about I think, giving I mean, money to women. And look, I think that that has to do with the fact that women are also emerging as a powerful voice in television, mm. mm-hmm. in yes. quote-unquote quality television, and female characters are emerging as powerful mm. in television. I mean, Catherine Han with I Love Dick, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, which sadly didn't get renewed. Which yeah, didn't yeah. get renewed. Uh, Vida, this fantastic mm-hmm. stars show about a Mexican-American pair of sisters. Uh, Smilf yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Even something like Shameless, yep. where Emmy Rossum plays this very strong yep. 28-year-old 20, woman. I think that... You know, I remember I was working at a film magazine in Mexico when The Brave One with Jodie Foster was released, Mm. Neil Jordan's. And um, I remember very distinctly the head of Warner saying that they wouldn't fund any movies with lead female characters for the time being. After that was a commercial flop. flop. Even though it was a fantastic film, I found. So, uh, yeah, Tamara Jenkins, I'm super keen to see again what she's going to be doing next. Fantastic. Eloise? Well, mine is, again, not someone who is newly emerged onto the scene by any means, um, but a Japanese actor who has been working in film and TV for 10 years and has even won awards in Japan and in the States. So not uh, newly emerged in 2018 at all, but someone who I hadn't seen on screen before, Sakura Andu from Shoplifters, um, who played um, Nobuya, I think was her name, the kind of mother figure um, in this, like, you know, makeshift family. Um, So... Just the, I mean, the the role itself, for those of us, of you who haven't seen Shoplifters, I mean, I think that you absolutely should um, in any way that you can because, uh, well, it's a Coriator film. I think a return to his powerful narratives that, you know, the last couple that he's made haven't quite affected me in the same way as something like, I mean, Nobody Knows, which was the film that Shoplifters is being compared to the most. Um, Yeah, just that. That's a film that I would wouldn't watch again. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, isn't it? with me forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sakura Andu in this film, she plays the, the mother figure and just the, the script is so powerful, I think, and so she has a lot to work with. But the way that she kind of mixes this, like, love, hurt, desperation, yeah. resolve, but also a lack of self-pity for their position and in their family, I think, is yeah. just astounding. And I have been, like, kind of thinking of her face since I saw it. Um, during yeah. MIF in August. Like, yes. she's just kind of incredible in any scenario. Like, in her workplace, she has this kind of resolve and, and sense of humour um, with her adopted chosen children. Like, oh, I remember that bit where they, you know, they adopt this young girl, maybe a five-year-old yeah. girl, and she, um, Nabuya says, um, you know, we don't, we don't have the resources to have another child, so let's not do it. But then... Um, sees her scars on her body and notices that this girl's yeah. being abused yeah. um, at her other home and so kind of just crumbles yeah. when she sees her and says, yes, we need to take care of her. Like, it's, it was just an astounding performance. And, and I, you know, when I watch it, you get the sense that everybody else, she's like the, everybody sort of orbits around her. Like, yeah. she just 
anchors that film emotionally and kind of in the connection to all of the the relationships that are operative in that film. Yeah, the way she kind of, um, you know, operates with the matriarch as well, played by Kieran Kiki, um, you know, is is just incredible that she kind of is the core, the level-headed core of the family where everyone else is a little bit of a, you know, mischief. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just like a really um, incredible performance. I was reading a review in um, Vulture by written by Emily Yoshida, and I just wanted to say, um, oh, Nobuyo is her name, apologies. At the end of the road, Nobuyo tries to reckon with the fact that the life she's built for herself was always untenable, and I won't soon forget Ando rubbing her head almost compulsively, her devastation boiling down to one repeated wounded gesture. Um, you know, and that, I mean... It's a heartbreaking performance in the end, but that there's so much that comes before that, yeah. I think, yeah. as well. That's beautiful. But I was trying to read reviews getting, you know, people who had been moved by her, and I think that she is maybe one of the kind of highlights of that film. Agreed. And I've got uh, somebody that I sort of picked out as being, um, doing some just really incredible, very complex work, and that's Alex Wolfe in Hereditary. Um, a lot of people are talking about... Um, Tony Collette in that film, justifiably, she's really good. And, you know, I suppose it's, it's an odd thing to think about the horror film that has the great performance because we're so used to, you know, that not being the central focus for the horror film. It's the screaming and the running. Um, but this is a film that's much more cerebral, much more kind of um, complex. And although, as I say, justifiably, Tony Collette gets a lot of kudos for what she's done in that film, Alex Wolfe, who plays the son, does some... Really, he has some of the hardest scenes to try and play around with in that film. You know, there is that incident, an unnameable incident in the first 20 minutes of the film where something terrible happens and the camera just hangs on his face and and it's his capacity to to communicate that confusion and the horror and the disgust and the oh shitness of what's just occurred is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it's a very uh, complex set of emotions that he has to navigate his way through. And I think he does that brilliantly. But also the the fact that a lot of the um, the narrative twists end up converging on him and he has to try and find a way to um, play a range of kind of increasingly kind of lunatic <laughs> sort of events that I think he does incredibly masterfully. The other thing that I really loved about the performance is the way that he starts out as this dumb stoner dude who's you know smoking weed behind the bleachers and by the towards the end of the film he becomes increasingly infantile so he's not one of those people who gets stronger he actually gets weaker and so that he has to play increasingly a a crumbling of his personality a crumbling of his strength so that by the end of the film he's just crying a lot and asking for mummy Uh, and that's a really hard thing to do that he has to play these incredibly intense outrageous moments and at the same time be increasingly vulnerable and childlike. It's an incredibly you know, difficult task that I think that he pulls off really, really admirably. So I'm super impressed with him. He's done a couple of other films. It's not his first film by any means. I think he's in Thoroughbreds, a couple of other films as well. Um, but Alex Wolfe is the one that I think that we need to keep an eye on. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and that we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this December. Mark? 
All right, uh, because it's December and I'm filled, filled, I tell you, with Christmas cheer, <laughs> I'm going to do about nine. So get ready. Um, <laughs> so, so pull up a chair, have a nap. Um, so there's a couple of things. So things that I, I really appreciated at the end of this year. Um, I know it's supposed to be December, but I'm kind of cheating a little bit. Um, uh, one is a shout out to uh, the end of this year for the work that has been done by Michelle Carey. Um, she has she is an editor at Senses of Cinema and she's fantastic and amazing. She also wrapped up her uh, tenure as the head of MIF this year. And MIF this year was an incredible festival. She's done such tireless astonishing work and I just wanted to use the the little recommendations um, section to recommend Michelle Carey. Um, I, I recommend Michelle Carey to you all. She's an amazing lady, an incredible worker, really smart uh, person and the work she's done for MIF has just been uh, astonishing. The second thing, so I've recommended a person, now I would like to recommend a country. Um, so this this episode is coming out Think of this episode as being kind of the late November one and the early December one. Um, last last month, unfortunately, didn't quite happen because I was overseas, and I was in India where I was um, went to a conference. And India had never been there before. What a country that is! Incredible and amazing. And the reason that I wasn't around was because I was attending this conference that was a convergence uh, of all of the uh, some of the the leading film schools in the nation. And, you know, I guess my, the thing that has heartened me the most is for the next generation of filmmakers, because, you know, for listeners who aren't aware, both Eloise and I work in a, in a, a film school at Swinburne. And so we are essentially teaching the next generation of Australian filmmakers. This conference was the meeting of a whole stack of people arriving in the one location in Mumbai in India, uh, and uh, just sharing kind of how we tackle film production. And it was a wonderful experience to just be in a room with, you know, not just the people from Australia, where obviously I am from, uh, but from, you know, from Bulgaria, from Norway, from London, from um, Colombia, from, uh, you know, Benin, uh, from Kenya, from Russia, and getting all of those film schools combined together and sharing how we go about you know, teaching, training, getting uh, students prepared for uh, the the film industry on a global scale is just an awesome thing. I would like to reassure everybody that as long as these people keep working, um, film is going to keep going, uh, and it's <laughs> and it, so it's not going to be the death of cinema. It is going to be the continuation <laughs> of cinema because there are some amazing uh, film teachers out there, and it is a real global push uh, to maintain our film and television industries right across the globe. And that made me very happy. Um, what else? I told you I was going to keep going. The other thing, um, Mumbai, what a city that was insane and amazing and astonishing. Uh, and a, a shout out to the film school there, Whistling Woods International, an incredible place that is doing some awesome work with their students uh, in Mumbai. So congrats to them. I'm going to end on something very Indian. Um, because I did spend almost a week and a half there, so I'm totally a Mumbaiker now. I'm, I'm part of that, that furniture because that's the way it works. Um, there is a, a series on Netflix called Sacred Games, 
which is a, a kind of like a cop thriller uh, sort of show that is set in Mumbai. I think the, the lead actor is Saif Ali Khan and he plays the, the Sikh detective. And uh, um, oh, what's it? Oh, I've forgotten his name now. It's Noah Zedin Siddiqui uh, plays the kind of the creepy, spooky gangster dude uh and i've watched the first couple of episodes it's super interesting it's one of those uh series that kind of goes in two directions at once one is a kind of contemporary story one is a flashback uh really interesting india is doing some great stuff and uh i encourage everybody to go and seek it out so my i guess my recommendations for december are the world <laughs> the world the world just narrowing it down a easy little. we can follow up on that for sure yeah no worries let's check on the world next month Great. Yeah. Cesar? Something that I have been binge watching for the past three days, uh-huh. which is Kidding. Okay. It's a TV show uh, produced by Michelle Gondry, which I, didn't, I don't hold in super high regard, mm. but this is fantastic. Jim Carrey, who I think is a very underrated actor, gives a performance of his life. Uh, very strong um, performances by Catherine Keener as well. Mm-hmm and Frank Langella, and it's about a sort of Wiggles-like character, Mr. Pickles. So it's about this sort of like child entertainer who's on television, he's like a huge brand everywhere throughout the world, and he struggles. He loses a child, and it's his life sort of like crumbling down. After that, it has some amazing camera work. There's this scene in which a woman is shown watching the TV show throughout different stages of her life, and the camera just moves in 360 degrees. And there's no editing. There's an amazing video on Twitter, so you can just, like, Google it, on how the production team just shifted the furniture around while the camera was on the opposite side of the room. It's just fantastic. And this very Michel Gondry yeah, yeah. kind of it. way of doing like doing it analog. And yeah, it's a, it's a great TV show. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And again, it's, uh, it's not on Netflix in Australia. It's on Stan. But it's uh, elsewhere in, in the world for our listeners from other places. So yeah, and Jim Carrey, yeah, God, he's a good actor. Fantastic. Have Always. you watched it? Always. I haven't watched it, no. But. Yeah. I'll have to get to it. Yeah. Although first I need to finish um, another show that I'm going to recommend to our <laughs> listeners, um, which is Homecoming. Uh, I can't oh, remember okay. who the creator is, so apologies um, to them. But it's an Amazon show starring um, Julie Roberts. So it's kind of her mm. first foray into television, yeah. I think. Um, and I've only seen three episodes. I think it's a 10-episode show. Um and so I've only seen three, a friend and I are watching it together. So it's kind of, we have to just find time to, to make it work. And look, it's not a, it's not a very bingey kind of show format. They're only 25 to 30 minutes, the episodes, but it's not like, I don't need more immediately. And it's kind of a thriller. It's dark. Um, it's a little slow, which is uh, not slow in, you know, that it's a slog, but just that it's very, I guess, underhanded and you don't really need to yeah. kind of keep going. Um, but it's sort of, it's set, I think, in 2021. 
Um, and then there's flashbacks to kind of the 2018. Um, so in 2018, the 2018 portion of the story, it's set in this um, return kind of rehabilitation facility for returned vets. And this is from the podcast, right? Yes, that's right. There was a podcast right. which I listened yeah. to. Oh, you which did. Which starred Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac. Oh, great. Yes. Oh, Um, anyway, so yes, kind of Julia Roberts is this therapist there and she's involved, um, with one particular guy is the focus, one particular returned vet. Um, and then there's this mystery set up where we don't know exactly what happened in 2018, but for some reason she's being investigated, um, by, um, is it Steve Buscemi, I want to say, is the investigator? No, it's not. I said that because of Boardwalk Empire. It's the other guy who played Eli in Boardwalk Empire, um, the brother of Steve yeah. Buscemi. Anyway, whose name I can't remember either. Apologies. But I find this a really interesting show, particularly because of what it, um, what Julie Roberts does. And as an um, kind of accompaniment to the show, I want to recommend an article written by a, a New York writer, Manuel Betancourt, who is actually a friend of mine. Um, but he wrote in BuzzFeed, an article about her evolution past the America's Sweetheart persona um, and how she's fought against that and what else has happened. The fact that she was labelled America's Sweetheart kind of extraordinarily early in her career before she even was an America's Sweetheart. Like she'd done about two movies, I think, when she was given that label. And so her entire career has trying to be pushing back against that and, and saying, no, I'm worthy, I'm something else, I'm doing different things. So I think that that article is really, really interesting and it, um, I think, interviews her and people around her and it's just a, like, kind of terrific piece of a star um, theory. Yeah. Um, but anyway, looking at those two things together, I think, is just, yeah, is great. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast and thanks, of course, to Eloise Ross and our wonderful, fantastic, brilliant third chair, Cesar Alba and Torres. Thanks also, yet again, to our wonderful technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who is our master and whom we all serve with loyalty and dedication. Um, the World Poll, by the way, is also up and running uh, for another year. So if you're looking to submit uh, a World Poll to the Senses um, World Poll moment uh you can head to the facebook page facebook.com slash senses of cinema or you can follow senses on twitter uh, which is at senses of cinema and the details will be available there the deadline i think is the 23rd of december so you can get those world polls to me and i shall be collating them over the christmas break so you have time to watch roma and put it at the top of the list I do. So, like, <laughs> no, I'm tell- spo- spoilers, yeah. <laughs> my I'm world poll will have Roma at the top. Yeah. Unless I say something else, and I probably won't. <laughs> also, thanks to uh, Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will speak with you again next month. <laughs> <laughs>